1: On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast.
4: Mr. Jamie, I'm ready for my close up.
0: Bad news, you're under arrest. <gasps> no, nor. A cab includes particularly the cops that arrested Norma Desmond. She did nothing wrong. All she did was have a dream. Murdering a male screenwriter is not against the law. (laughs) Brutal, brutal. I feel like the movie does feel that way a little bit, but maybe I'm just projecting. Welcome to the Bechdel cast. We are washed up podcast stars. they're oh god you know really is it like the second you turn 30 that you're like oh Norva Desmond, hmm, you know was she wrong she's hmm, got hmm. some
4: interesting
0: ideas you know maybe she's on to something maybe <laughs> i should live with a little chimpanzee at my house and would that be so bad <laughs> oh i felt so bad for that
4: really weird looking chimp i don't know what the prop department was doing but it
0: was like what Ugh, okay. I'm not even gonna say it. There's something. Nope, never mind. Okay. Yeah, I'm Washed Up <laughs> Podcast Star Jamie Loftus.
4: And I'm Washed Up Podcast Star Caitlin Durante, and this is our washed up podcast.
0: <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> where,
4: where we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens using the Bechtel test as a jumping off point.
0: Oh, this movie has a fun pass. There uh, yeah. What just happened to my brain? Holy shit. Happy New Year. Yes. And here's what the Bechtel test is. (laughs) We're too washed up to even talk. Oh, my God. Sorry. Our brains are just so old and decaying (laughs) that we don't even know. We think we're on the set of Salome or whatever. Uh Can't keep spacing out in the middle of this recording and being like, Salome? Where are we? What? Anyways, sorry. Our feeble old brains aren't working. Uh, The Bechtel test is a media metric Originally created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechdel with her friend Liz Wallace, which is why it's often called the Bechdel-Wallace Test. It was originally created just as a one-off joke in her excellent comic Dykes to Watch Out For as a way of drawing attention to how little queer representation there was and how infrequently women spoke to each other. Lots of versions of the test. Our version is this we require that a character of a marginalized gender with a name speak to another character of a marginalized gender with a name about something other than a man for two lines of dialogue. Most movies don't do it. Past, present, Mm -hmm. and I'll say it, future. I don't think we moved the needle very much, but that's okay. (laughs) And today, we are discussing a movie that has been on our request list forever Mm -hmm. and one that just felt like it would be fun because it features the most depressing new year's party ever committed to film truly and we just hit the new year and Mm -hmm. so it's high time we cover sunset boulevard 1950 directed by billy wilder that's so true who is german not australian (laughs) (laughs) yeah wait huge news caitlin and i (gasps) were talking to an australian guy the other night at a New Year's party that was not depressing. It was very fun. It was very fun. And he complimented your Australian accent. He did. And he did. I, I felt so honored. It was truly like in the seven years we've been doing this, the first time we've received active encouragement from an authority. <laughs> and it felt really good. Yeah. So thank you, Trent, for. <laughs> for The encouragement. For the compliments. That did not pass the Bechdel test. So, you know, hope you're taking notes. Hope you're keeping up.
4: Correct. You know what is going to pass the Bechdel test, though, is when we take a little detour to plug
0: the tour that we have coming Mm. up. Yes, it will totally pass the Bechdel test because a tour is famously genderless. And it's about Barbie. The Barbie movie. I'm really excited. I... Just don't have a bone of hate in my body for the Barbie movie, except for the few that we'll talk about at the show. <laughs> yeah, we were touring five cities Coming up at the beginning of February, we are covering the Barbie movie In Every City. February 1st, we'll be at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. February 2nd, we'll be going over to Sacramento. Ooh, Greta Gerwig vibes much. Mm, everything about wow, that. Lady Bird. <laughs> our Barbie show there is sold out, but we still have tickets available to our second show, which is about the Wolf of Wall Street, which is mm-hmm. like mm, basically the same movie, I'm Same experience. You'll be fine. Too much. Yeah. Bring the lids. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
4: Then after that, we are heading to Texas and doing a show in Dallas on February 3rd, a show in Austin on February 5th. And then we are circling back around to Southern California and doing a show in San Diego on February 10th. We're covering Barbie at all of those shows and tickets are still available, although they're going fast. So yes. Make sure you grab your tickets, which you can do Mm -hmm. at Linktree slash Bechtelcast. And you're going to want to see us live because here's the thing. We put on a show. It's a spectacle, okay? We are ready for our Mm close-up at these live shows, you know? (laughs) we are certainly we wear outfits we do slideshows. if we have time we do audience q a
0: sound really exciting <laughs> we wear clothes and there's we play games we've sung we've danced we really put on we a little, eat sometimes on stage we do demand <laughs> to be fed it's kind of like you mm-hmm. know a crossover between like a fetish video and a sexy college lecture so uh so so come on down. and then we always uh we have tour exclusive Merch, and then we do meet and greets afterwards. So yes. it's it's always a fun time, and we hope to see you there. Indeed. Don't believe we can have a fun time talking about a movie? Well, listen to this. Caitlin, what's uh-huh. your experience with the movie Sunset Boulevard? So I saw it for the first time
4: either late in high school or early college. I would have been like 17, 18, mm-hmm. something like that. I knew that it was a very culturally significant movie, you know, one of the greats from the classic Hollywood era. So it's been on my radar for a very long time. And yeah, I watched it, Once then, probably once again for like a film school assignment and then maybe even a second time for a film school assignment when I did go and get my master's degree in screenwriting at Boston University. A fact that I never mention. And you know who probably doesn't have a master's in screenwriting from Boston University? Me? Is Joe Gillis.
0: Oh, I was like, wow. Why are you yelling at me? (laughs) Uh Yeah, it's true. It's true. And that's why he's such a failure. Exactly. And maybe that's why he died. Mm, Uh, (laughs) Makes you think. Yeah, I have a similar experience with this movie. I hadn't seen it in a bit, but I would consider it in sort of my top tier of movies. I've seen it many times. I saw it for the first time, I think, in college. First, just for fun or like the film program, like we've discussed, like, Oh you have to watch this movie because like this movie is I think like fantastic and it's also heavily assigned. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people watch this movie for school and maybe more people should watch it for fun because it's fun to watch. <laughs> but yeah, I I think I've mentioned this in the show in past years. I took this class in college that Not only aged tremendously poorly, but at the time students were like, What the fuck? I had a class called Wilder, Allen, and Kaufman. Right. And I took heavy objection to exactly one of those uh, directors. I didn't want to, I wanted to study the other two and not the middle one. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. It was like 2013, and they were like, "Uh, Shut up. Anyways, I quite enjoyed the Wilder portions Mm -hmm. of that class uh, and the Kaufman portions. But for the sake of this conversation, I sort of became a proper Billy Wilder fan through taking that class. I think he's a really fascinating person, complicated, certainly imperfect, but like I, I really like his work. And I mean, I think this is my favorite Billy Wilder movie, but I mean, it is like kind of not to like start the episode out by like handing it to a man. But (laughs) I really, really like I mean, the amount of incredibly influential movies that he turned out in this course of his career is absolutely, I'll say it is wilder.
4: Wow. I mean, you've got Double Indemnity, which we have covered a couple years ago on the show Mm -hmm. with Anita Sarkeesian. We have not covered, but other very notable movies of his include The Seven Year Itch, The apartment and some Some like Like it It hot, Hot, which is probably my favorite Wilder movie.
0: I mean, like it's almost like a three way tie between because we were also talking about covering the apartment this week because it's also like a holiday time movie. Mm -hmm. It might be a tie between Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment for me, but some like it hot is also so great. Mm -hmm. See, he also directed Sabrina. Like he did a lot of great work and. I was trying to read more. I know that he had contentious relationships with actors and actresses, it seemed like, but I think he's been through several rounds of film buff discourse of is his work pro women is his work anti women, I think the Mm. answer as with most people is like, somewhere in the middle, and it depends from text to text. And it depends on the years coming out all this stuff. I love Sunset Boulevard. I love the performances in it. And I really, I mean, I hadn't watched it, I want to say for maybe like three or four years. And there's so much to talk about. But I think like as it's probably my favorite movie about movies. It's a good one. yeah. And I feel like it still has a lot to say in a way that feels like kind of depressingly not dated. (laughs) This movie is over 70 years old and it still Mm. feels like what it's saying is still very relevant to how the movie industry works, but also very specific to the silent era. And like, Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to talk about the context of this movie because Norma Desmond is such a complex character that I feel like you can view a million ways. Some of which are, we'll talk about all 1 million. (laughs) I just have like such, I can't imagine being Gloria Swanson and having like this experience Mm -hmm. and then being like, here's the character. And then not just being like, Okay, I can compartmentalize my entire life and career and play this caricature right. of an actor and while watching my movies that were directed by Max Eric the Butt. Like Eric... whatever. Yeah. And that movie was directed by him and like mm-hmm. compartmentalize it and not just be able to compartmentalize it, but like deliver such an iconic performance that Truly. like is so stripped of artifice and like it's just and I have issues with that in some ways but I just like I don't know I can't watch this movie and not be like oh my god I don't know if I could even consider doing something that would require compartmentalizing your ego to that extent it's unbelievable I know right
4: (laughs) well shall we get into it with the recap let's do it let's take a quick break first and then we'll come back And we're, we're back. back. All right. So here's the recap of Sunset Boulevard. But before that, I'll place a content warning for suicide as well as
0: emotional abuse in a partnership. If you're triggered by a character named Hog Eye. Hog Eye. I have so many questions about Hog Eye. What was going <laughs> Who's on? Hogeye? Hog Eye. There are a few lines in this movie that are obviously like very famous, whether you've seen the movie or not. But mm-hmm. hello, Hawgye. <laughs> You're like, whoa, that's uh, the greatest line read I've ever heard. <laughs> so Because it's also not clear because he identifies himself. I don't think she remembers him.
4: Yeah. He says, hey, it's me, Hawgye. <laughs> and then she responds, hello, hello Guy. Hog hog but it's we don't know if she recognizes him and knows him or if she's just like being
0: like, I'm going to guess she does I, I mean, I guess she's actively listening, but just like the way she greets Hawkeye, and he's so thrilled. Uh, iconic. Oh my god! Yeah. Hello, Hawkeye. <laughs> All right. So the for movie opens.
4: <laughs> the movie opens on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, oh, California. Ever, ever heard, heard, of, heard it? of it? Oh,
0: I can see it from my freaking house. Oh my gosh. Hmm. I can't wait to die in a pool. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay. So the police are heading to a huge mansion on Sunset Boulevard to investigate a homicide because the body of a man was found floating in the pool of a movie star.
0: Yes. I feel like, you know, narration is so often, like, overused or, like, as a lazy tool, but it rocks in this movie. And there's also that sort of moment where, like, Joe, the William Holden character, is like... This isn't a famous thing to say yet, but he's like, hmm, you're kind of wondering how I got here, huh? Well, <laughs> kind of a weird here story. Here we go. Let's yeah. take it back. <laughs> you're
4: like, Let's flashback to six months earlier mm-hmm. where we meet and we get voiceover narration from a struggling screenwriter who again I can only assume is struggling because he doesn't have a master's degree in screenwriting
0: it's so uh, yeah watching this I mean just like individually you're just like wow I don't like that I can relate with Joe and Norma no (laughs) bad (laughs) and and Betty Betty. like I know I know it's almost like it's a really good movie okay wow
4: okay so this screenwriter is Joe Gillis played by William Holden and some men show up at his apartment to try to repossess his car because he's several months behind on payments. He needs some quick cash. He mentions $290, which is nearly $4,000 in today's money. Bad and Bad situation. Yes. So he's trying to go around town and borrow money from friends. No luck. He also goes to Paramount to pitch a story idea, hoping that he can sell a script. But the producer isn't interested because a script reader named Betty, played by Nancy Olson, Mm. is like, yeah, I read that script and it sucked. So I honestly feel
0: like you have such Betty vibes. I kept writing down Caitlin vibes when... (laughs) He was like, what do you think? And she would just be like, nah, it it's sucks. trite and boring. Yeah. And then they meet up again later and you're like, oh, she's good. But she's just as hard. <laughs> she's just like, no, it's bad. I still don't like it. But then she's also like, but
4: I've heard you're talented and I can see your potential. So let's collaborate. And Right.
0: Which is like at least grounded in the fact that she's seen work of his that she liked, but like none of the yeah. work of his that she liked has ever been produced, which does feel True to form. Yeah, I really like that exchange between them where she's like, I heard you had talent. He's like, Not this year. I'm trying to work this year. I'm like, (laughs) Damn, me too. Me too, man. Relatable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So
4: Joe leaves, and while he's driving down Sunset Boulevard, he spots the guys who are trying to repo his car. So he speeds away and ends up in the driveway of what appears to be an abandoned mansion. And he hides his car in the empty garage. Mm -hmm. His plan is basically to skip town, take a bus back to Ohio, and kind of just like give up on the Hollywood life. Mm -hmm. But as he's there examining this mansion, he hears a woman's voice, and it turns out the house has not been abandoned. Then a butler named Max, played by Eric von Stroheim, who if you don't know, is a prominent silent film era director who directed a movie starring Gloria Swanson. Named and don't
0: worry, they show the, a clip of it. They'll it's screen so, it later. This movie is so good. God. <laughs> yes.
4: So anyway, Max, the Butler shows Joe inside and the woman whose voice we heard had mistaken Joe for being an undertaker who's there to remove the body of a dead chimpanzee a monkey
0: undertaker, yeah, <laughs> what? And the chimpanzee has been dead. I dare I say for a while. It seems it's like so grotesque. It... it looks dry, uh-huh. yucky. It's nasty, anyways, real meat cute. At the top. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. They yeah, kind yeah. of do like start vibing immediately. Like, you know, it's fundamentally an abusive relationship. But this first encounter, I'm like, are they vibing right now over the whole dead monkey situation? They're vibing, but in a very, it's like a very neggy yeah, way. Yeah, like both ways. Mm-hmm. With, yes, with,
4: yeah, with these It's two. a two-way negging street. They're weirdos. They're, <laughs> <laughs> they're sick. So anyway, Joe is like, you got the wrong guy. But wait a minute. I recognize you. Because the woman is Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, a silent movie star who used to be very famous, but hasn't worked as an actor since talkies became popular, which is something that we learn she deeply resents that, yes. you know, she's not working anymore. And and that she has hasn't
0: that. completely accepted Mm -hmm. That she is no longer a big current star and also that she struggles to accept the fact that she's aging and accept her own mortality because of how older women are treated in Hollywood. Which I Mm -hmm. feel like this is one of the few movies of this era that like, well, we'll get into it, but like, it's at least suggested and clear that there is a systemic reason that she's trained to see herself. It's all over the place, but Mm -hmm. like... I feel like it's clearer than, you know, normally you see a woman over 40, much less 50, (gasps) that the call is coming from inside the house. And Mm -hmm. this is just something that happens. At least this movie, I think, does a better job than a lot of current movies do to contextualize it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. True. Uh, But it doesn't free her from, you know, the tropes, all that stuff. Right. right, It's so weird because we're covering. Well, yeah, I guess this will come out in sequential order. We're covering May, December coming up Mm -hmm. next week. And I know it's just because we've been sort of preparing for these episodes beside each other, but there are these like interesting parallels uh, between, you know, just like an older woman or and by old, you know, a, a woman over 50, right? Yeah. Whose whole life... Has been constructed to protect her from reality, mm-hmm. amongst other things. But it was just interesting watching those movies side by side and being like, oh, obviously I know that Todd Haynes has seen Sunset Boulevard, but there is like the, just the haunted house feel to it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was also getting some misery
4: parallels. Sure. Yeah. A movie we covered
0: some time years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah.
4: And I was like, wow, I bet Stephen King. Watch Sunset Boulevard.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I love having the genius thought that maybe a famous director has seen one of the most famous movies ever. Like,
4: <laughs> could it be? Hmm, I don't interesting. Know. I don't know. Anyway, so Joe recognizes Norma Desmond and she's like, Oh, wait a minute, you're a writer? Well, I wrote a story about Salome that I want Cecil B. DeMille to direct. And she wants Joe to read her very long, handwritten
0: script. It's got Santa University vibes. (laughs) I was like, wow, literally Norma Desmond wrote her Santa University. (laughs) And also she's like, and no one will produce it. It's 600 pages. Yep. (laughs) She won't take notes.
4: Certainly not. And so Joe starts reading it and it turns out to be like poorly written, melodramatic drivel. But Joe realizes that he can try to squeeze some money out of Norma if he offers to rewrite the script. Yeah, And she's like, well, you're a Sagittarius, so I can trust you.
0: Again, I was just like, no, (laughs) no. That's (laughs) the worst reasoning I've ever heard.
4: (laughs) There's another scene later on where she's talking about like, today is the exact right day to drop off the script to Cecil B. DeMille because of, like, the alignments of the planets and how she's a blah, blah,
0: blah, and he's a Leah or whatever. Like She's like, LA <laughs> women are going to LA women. It doesn't matter what decade it is exactly the position of the stars is what is going to make or break their flopping career you know (laughs) sure yeah 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 yeah. and also like we don't even need to ascribe a gender to it that's just simply what it's like out here Mm -hmm. in general it's true and if you live in LA and you think you're immune to it you just haven't lived here long enough I don't think I quite recently was
4: like okay fine I'll (laughs) finally figure out what my
0: like Rising and moon signs are. Oh my gosh. Wait, you should get a chart reading from my friend Cameron. (gasps) Shout out Cameron Farmer's chart. My boyfriend just got his chart read by them because he also was like, okay, you win. LA, you win. I will find out about the stars. I know. And then also a
4: few years ago, I bought crystals. I went to House of Intuition. I remember. And I bought crystals because I was like, these are going to change my life and did they certainly not but
0: they're pretty a bunch of people just uh threw their phone across the they're just like god damn it they're all like this it's kind of true but like you know victimless crime unless you get into like a wellness cult don't do that don't do that just don't do that just don't do yeah, that. yeah exactly anyways norma desmond not immune i was just it was funny to be like oh wow 1950 and yeah yeah it's, it's just always been like that
4: yeah i didn't realize it but it's true good for her okay so norma has joe read the rest of her script she makes him stay the night to finish reading it because she won't let the script leave her house she sets up a room for him and he's like okay this is fucking weird but whatever i need money yeah then he wakes up to discover that norma had her butler max bring all of joe's stuff to her home Basically, she wants him to move in while he's working on her script. And he's upset and freaked out, but he decides to get to work and get it over with as quickly as possible. But Norma is, like, hovering over him. She's being very controlling. And it's also clear, like you previously mentioned, Jamie, that she's, like, she's been very sheltered. She's
0: perhaps delusional she's also very egotistical and there's a big twist that like triple validates this late in the movie but Mm -hmm. like it still feels very like Max is like her protector it's how I think of my eldest cat Uh, (laughs) Flea Flea has Max vibes where he's like don't disturb her (laughs) she's working
4: (laughs) But yeah, she's very, like, self-absorbed. She's always responding to fan mail from her adoring fans. She always insists on watching her own movies, things like that. The
0: fan mail thing was another May-December overlap for me where the Julianne Moore character, like, it's the same three neighbors keeping her bakery in business to appease her. And, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, just sort of this, like, privileged but contextually upsetting And, like, fundamental, like, just the bubble that you're stuck in. Yeah. Granted, I have far more empathy for Norma. And, you know, she Mm -hmm. did what she had to do. Yeah.
4: (laughs) So, more time passes. And a dynamic starts to emerge between Norma and Joe. Where, basically, she becomes his sugar mama. Whoa. I said it. I don't think I've ever heard you say that phrase out loud. (laughs) It Felt so weird coming out of my mouth. I'm not going to lie.
0: <laughs> Someone
4: clipped that. Is that even the term? Sugar mama?
0: Is that I it? I think so. Sugar I think mommy? So. Sugar mommy? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think sugar mommy, sugar daddy. Yeah. It had, it, but then sugar mama sugar is mama. a character on the Proud Family. And so how do we square that? Uh-huh. We don't know.
4: The bottom line is Joe is her sugar baby. That's definitely there we true. Go. That's, yes. okay. Okay. And we're back <laughs> and we're back. And Norma seems to be into him, but he at present is not into her. Yeah. We also around this time find out that Max, the butler is the one who is sending all of the fan mail to Norma. Yeah. And so Joe is like, yikes. Okay. Then he attends Norma's New Year's Eve party, except that Mm. Joe is the only one who Norma invited and And (laughs) because she's she's in love with him.
0: Yeah. And she's like being actively predatory. Creepy.
4: Yeah. And so he's creeped out and he leaves and goes to his friend's New Year's Eve party hosted by Artie, who says that Joe can stay with him for a few weeks because Joe's trying to get the (sighs) hell out of there.
0: Artie really gets the short end of the stick. I mean, I guess Joe mm-hmm. dies, so that doesn't end very well for him. But there was like a poor Artie later on. I'm like, Artie did nothing wrong, except ask someone to come to Arizona, which is like generally <laughs> don't do that. No offense to all of our treasured wow, Arizona. Wow, we just listeners. got so many someone else threw their phone at the wall. <laughs> oh, you LA people think you're better than Arizona? And here's why the stars are on my side. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, let's get
4: <laughs> Yeah. Don't listen to us. Anyway, Artie's girlfriend is Betty, the script reader from earlier, who mentions to Joe that she has read another one of his scripts, and she's like, it does suck for the most part, but there's this flashback with a teacher character that has a lot of potential. Yeah. So they're talking about that.
0: Betty's good at her job like she's Mm -hmm. direct but she's also constructive Constructive. like the lady knows what she's doing exactly and she's only 22 she's got a future in this town (sighs) tell me about it well we'll get there but it's just like god I mean I guess you already know that Joe dies I'm just like you know he really would have been dead weight in her life so Mm -hmm. sorry sorry about but also it. like what's she gonna do move to arizona i sure hope not i hope she just was like hey i just need to be single for a while i think that I, that's that's I what bet i
4: want to do that yeah. I hope so. but before then she and joe are flirting a little bit even though Artie is in the next room Ugh.
0: and so, so that's there's not that. very that's not very nice and then also i'm like well she's 22 whatever yeah, yeah. So then Joe discovers that
4: Norma is horribly distraught and that she attempted suicide after he left her New Year's Eve party. So he hurries back to her house to comfort her. And then they kiss. And then it fades to black, which I feel implies they have sex. uh, I'm on board with, yes. Yeah, yes. So now Norma and
0: Joe are like together i love uh, what it says on scholarly journal wikipedia that made me laugh (laughs) joe returns to norma and their relationship becomes non-platonic oh they fuck like they definitely do
4: fuck yeah hard i mean i don't know (laughs) we don't know we don't know the production code wouldn't show it
0: yeah i'm like the writers knew (laughs) <laughs> the writers yeah, yeah, yeah. do. I, I believe Billy Wilder knew how Norma fucks, but we just weren't privy to that information.
4: Yeah. So Joe and Norma are together now, but also Joe bumps into Betty again, and she is urging him to work with her on this script idea. And he's like, I don't know. We'll see. Then the script of Norma's that Joe has been rewriting is finished, and it gets dropped off at Paramount Studios. Mm-hmm. And then a few days later, Norma and Joe go to Paramount to see Cecil B. DeMille. And Norma thinks that he wants to direct her movie, but it's clear to us, though not clear to Norma, that DeMille thinks she's a nuisance, and he wants nothing to do with her.
0: Uh, I'm excited to talk about this scene. It's a devastating scene. It's... yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. Really is. And this yes. is also where our friend Haggai shows up. So we have to get, hello, Haggai. <laughs> he spins a spotlight
4: around and shines <laughs> it on her. And she's like, yes, this is where I'm meant to be. And, you know, Haggai got an earful mm-hmm. from old Damil. probably got fired for that.
0: God. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> He's worked there for years, Caitlin. He's worked I there mean, since the silent era. Exactly. <laughs> can't fire Haga. Huh, hog. I let him uh, off with a warning.
4: I seriously, I know.
0: Anyway, so <laughs> thinking that
4: she is going to star in a movie soon and make this triumphant return to the screen, mm-hmm. Norma starts getting all kinds of facials and massages and beauty treatments. She starts counting calories, things like that. Meanwhile, that women are
0: still encouraged to do today.
4: Well, and, and also any actor, but... Right, yes. Yeah. But especially the pressure, because women are so highly valued for their appearance and their youth, that pressure is especially placed on women and femmes. Yes. Okay. Meanwhile, Joe has been sneaking out every night to meet up with Betty so that they can write this script about the teachers together. And also they're vibing, even though she is now engaged to Artie, who is, I think, working on a film in Arizona. Anyway, one night, Max catches Joe as he's returning from sneaking out. And Joe is like, Max, we have to put an end to this charade. What happens when she finds out that there is no Demille movie? And Max is like, she'll never find out. I was the one who made her a star. And I'll keep her that way and then this is where max reveals that he directed all of her early movies and that he was norma's first husband
0: (laughs) okay there i wild that twist never ceases to be like so you're doing what right and i think (laughs)
4: let me know if i have this right but it seems as though They were together and then it seems like she rose to stardom and then left him and he couldn't handle it and he came crawling back and then she made him her servant? Is that what happened? It seems (laughs)
0: like he... I I would say he certainly is still in love with her. Yeah. And also has this sort of paternalistic control over her life too because it's like I, I hadn't ever really like thought past like well what would norma's life look like if max wasn't there and i think that like Mm. he clearly thinks that she would be actively suffering without him preserving this delusion and kind of keeping her trapped in this house to an extent Mm -hmm. by taking you know making sure all of her needs are met but i you know it's like possibly not like you will never know because hard to say you know she's been preserved in, in this place i don't know yeah like the push and pull of like Norma is absolutely an emotionally abusive person and Mm -hmm. like extremely manipulative, sort of by any means necessary while having serious mental illness problems will also by any means necessary keep the people she wants around her, around her to preserve these Mm -hmm. delusions of grandeur that she has. But it's also like there is so much patriarchy that surrounds her.
4: right? And like she has this enabler who Mm -hmm. is
0: like, playing into this delusion so it's fa- yeah it's a, I mean it's, it's such a good movie yeah because it's just like yeah the cycle of abuse is present in every single character and mm-hmm. like you can argue that the you know Joe being straightforward with her is a gift in a way but it also is like it's what gets him killed I, it's oh it's good that Cecil B. DeMille sequence that leads into Max revealing that like She's Gru. I'm Kevin, and you're just like, huh? <laughs> Got it. Uh huh. It is kind of a Gru Kevin situation. If there was like three hundred Maxes, oh, it would be identical. Oh. Think about that. Right. So Max <laughs> you know? is
4: the Kevin Lemignon in this scenario. He's The
0: minions. He's and- all of the minions in one guy. <laughs> uh-huh. If Gru had married one of the minions, anyway, it doesn't <laughs> quite work, <laughs> but. <laughs> In no, any no, case, no. we can make this work. <laughs>
4: uh. <laughs> okay, so we get all these like intense reveals, and we're like, "Oh my gosh!" Meanwhile, Betty is talking to Joe, and she's like, "I'm not in love with my fiance Artie and my fiance, yes, anymore. I'm in love with you, Joe." Mm-hmm. And then they smooch on the lips. And so now Joe is trying to figure out a way to leave Norma. But, oh no, Norma, unbeknownst to Joe, has found the script that he's been working on with Betty. So Norma calls Betty to tell her, like, what this situation actually is with Joe. Like, who he lives with, how he lives, who's bankrolling his life, basically. Mm -hmm. And then... Betty goes over to Norma's house to see for herself what's going on. Also, Norma has bought a revolver and yeah. we're like, okay, check off gun alert. Yeah. Literally.
0: I think that that scene with Betty is so, I mean, like Joe, it makes sense what Joe's doing. And I think like he is so overcome by like shame and frustration and at least, I mean, one of the few men in movie history, baby, that can correctly identify when he's no good for a woman and mm-hmm. she's out of his league and he is like, and I will move to Ohio. And you're like, wow, more men should do that. <laughs> so like he he understands that like, even though he would like this relationship with Betty, mm-hmm actively in a way that i think kind of plays on movie tropes where it's like you know usually if you have the like no we can't they will by the end Mm -hmm. but like he at least has the presence of mind to be like this relationship with norma is too fucked up yeah and it like speaks to like what is norma really a symbol of but like by extracting himself from that relationship he's also extracting himself from like the hollywood machine Right, and everything fucked up about it, and extracting himself
4: from this cycle of abuse because he has been lying to Betty and withholding all this information from her, and that's so much of what's been happening between like Norma and Max, and I think right Joe realizes that he is like perpetuating that same cycle onto. Betty in a different way but totally and he's still very much like withholding information from her so he's like I don't I can't keep doing this I don't want to be a part of this period yeah
0: and I think it's really interesting and like speaks to her naivete as like a a younger character that like he brings her in tells her exactly like this is the way I've been lying to you Mm -hmm. it is tempting for me to stay for these very cynical reasons Mm -hmm. and she you know, I think again, it's like a little bit of a play on what we expect where she offers him forgiveness. you know, I, I could see that going either way like she's horrified by it but offers him a fresh start essentially. Mm-hmm. but again, he rejects it. he's like, no, I can't you know because yeah, I think you're totally right like him staying with Betty first of all will absolutely make her life worse and <laughs> also will keep him in this Hollywood cycle of abuse and it's like I feel like we're led to believe, weirdly that like Betty is maybe it's not even you know fast forward 30 years Betty is likely extremely jaded as well because that's just what Mm -hmm. happens yeah but that like it seems like she for reasons that it's like hmm, you know aligning like youth and beauty with like they'll be fine but I think that it's like set up that she is better suited to this life because She's like it's a generational thing with her family and she's had this experience with acting and leaving acting and like she has mm-hmm. the healthiest attitude about Hollywood sure. out of anyone. And I think it's because she's from there and like her parents do behind the scenes work. So it's like the less ego driven positions that are are sort of better suited to understand. This is just how it goes if you mm-hmm. work in this shitty garbage industry so I right. don't know I sort of went into this viewing being like uh, how do I feel about Betty is she an underwritten character but like I don't know coming out of it I was like I'm never going to argue with more <laughs> but I feel like it's really clear where she's coming from and like not that she is like higher functioning in this industry and like and it has a healthier attitude and avoid like it does make sense to me why she's kind of letting things roll off her shoulders, but still works hard kind of vibe.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about her more just because of her attitude toward the film industry and just kind of how that informs different things about her character. But yeah, yeah it's all very fascinating. Yes. Anyway, so, okay, Betty is there at the house now. She's trying to encourage Joe to, like, run away with her and, like, escape this scenario and leave. And he's like, no, uh, I've got a decent setup here. So Betty runs off heartbroken, but Joe decides it is time for him to leave and actually, like, go through with moving back to Ohio Mm -hmm. and just getting out of Hollywood in general. So he starts packing his belongings And Norma's like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving me? And he's like, wake up, Norma. There is no DeMille movie. The fan mail you get is fake and you're not a star anymore. And that's okay, but you got to face facts. And then he goes to leave, but Norma shoots him and he Mm -hmm. collapses in the pool, dead. Great Gatsby vibes. Good for him. Yes hmm So then after this, Norma goes into a kind of like fugue state where she completely disassociates and she's ignoring the cops and the press who are there interrogating her until the newsreel guys show up with cameras and she's like, cameras? Well, okay. Yeah. And then she slowly heads down That's the stairs nice. thinking that she's like in the middle of a scene that she's, like, back at the studio, that she has made her triumphant return. And this is where we get the famous line from the movie, one of the famous lines from the movie. Often misquoted. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And that's how the movie ends. So let's take a quick break, and we will come back to discuss.
0: Bean Dad, The Dress.
3: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the
6: court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr
3: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we're back. And we're back. Yeah, part of what I find fascinating about the ending of that movie, just like reckoning back to other movies we've covered and and like that takes place in the same sort of span of years is that the ghost of joe who's telling us this story Mm -hmm. clearly thinks that norma's life is you know he's like well i don't know what happens to her she probably won't serve a lot of prison time because she's so famous but like essentially his ghost is like she's fucked but i'm like Mm -hmm. kind of worked out for the the ladies in chicago who were trying to pivot from vaudeville into being moitera's so i feel All like maybe right. she's got another act in her could be you depends know? on
4: how it gets. you just spun. need
0: richard gear to be your lawyer <laughs> and you can really make things work that's mm-hmm. exactly. how i feel i wouldn't count norma out i wouldn't count her out oh yeah is that a good thing i don't know mm-hmm. okay where shall we begin Oh, boy. Let's see. I mean, I want to do a little context for this movie because Mm -hmm. it is like the context of it is very important. Yeah. So this is, you know, as we've already talked about a Billy Wilder movie, he was born in 1906. He is a Jewish director. He was born in uh, Austria, Hungary, which either way. Yeah. He ultimately moved to America and began working in films. I believe that he did do some work in the silent era, but mostly worked in the talkies, which exist to this day. What? In any case, this movie was extremely polarizing and sort of disliked in Hollywood communities. When it came Mm -hmm. out, it prompted Louis B. Mayer to say something very xenophobic to Billy Wilder. He said, you have disgraced the industry that made and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. And he kept going. Oh, I, he like said, get out of the country. Essentially implied that like he should go back to Germany, which to say that to a Jewish director in 1950 is unfucking believable. And like Louis B. Mayer notorious monster. right? But also speaks to like a, Billy Wilder was a very successful director within the studio system and within the star system. And this mm-hmm. was viewed as like, how dare you bite the hand that feeds you or criticize the hand that feeds you. Right. right. Which is like, fuck you. Which is exactly what <laughs> Billy Wilder walked up to Louis B. and said. said. He said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Girl, he was right. OK. The other thing that is like we've already referenced is the fact that so many people Because this came out in 1950, this was the time that like silent film stars that did not make the crossover into sound pictures Mm -hmm. were getting older and hadn't worked in a while. This was Gloria Swanson's first movie in like nine years at the time that she had Mm -hmm. kind of switched to I, I think it's an interesting point in history. And like the fact that this movie is as like brutal as it is, it's really interesting because it's we we were seeing around this time and like would continue even for like old Hollywood stars that did cross over into talking movies people like Betty Davis and people like Joan Crawford like Mm -hmm. they would be pushed into television back on stage or if they stayed in movies would often be cast you know the only way to really get a leading role would be to do older woman body horror which you see, mm-hmm. you know, as the years go on, like I think whatever happened to Baby Jade is a huge example of that where it's like, well, if you are a woman over 50 working at Hollywood and you want to work outside of like the kindly mother role, what are your options? And it is sort of like Norma Desmond is like the best role available because at least it's self-aware. But like mm-hmm. in most cases... There's a whole subgenre that still exists in certain ways. There's a great video essay about it from Be Kind Rewind that Mm -hmm. uh, talks about whatever happened to Baby Jane specifically, but basically it was like a whole subgenre called hag horror that, Mm -hmm. you know, just capitalizes on the star power of incredible actresses when they were younger and, you know, allows them to be in movies with the contingency that they are perpetuating the idea that being an aging woman is horrific right it's really interesting because like we've talked about like Gloria Swanson this is her lived experience we are seeing not Norma Desmond's story but like she you know was a silent film star who never quite broke out as a talking film actress before Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. She went back on stage. She was still working. She worked. She did yeah. stuff on TV. She worked on stage. You know, she wasn't rotting in a house, which I think is pretty fucking insulting. Yeah. But her career, and I think we still see this with women and femmes today, the types of roles she was offered changed. The types of mediums she was welcomed in changed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Max is played by a silent film director. Buster Keaton is in this movie. Right. DeMille plays himself. And
4: DeMille is often credited as the director who kind of made Gloria Swanson a star. Mm -hmm. So there's all these really interesting parallels between Gloria Swanson and the character she plays. Again, to our knowledge, Gloria Swanson wasn't, you know, didn't have a very warped (laughs) view of reality and wasn't like living no. in this kind of
0: delusion, but no, she was like living in New York acting on yeah. Broadway. Like she was right. okay. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's still like, I honestly haven't studied DeMille as a person very much. I know that he was a notorious conservative. I know that he was, you know, obviously deeply complicit in many of the sins of early Hollywood, but mm-hmm. it is, I think it's really kind of admirable that he was even willing to be in this movie as himself kind of acknowledging the system that he was still complicit within because that like that DeMille scene was shot on the set of a huge movie he was directing. Like it was Mm -hmm. exaggerated versions of the actual reality where it's like, he still hadn't even directed, you know, the 10, he hadn't even directed his biggest hit yet Mm -hmm. when this came out. And, you know, as far as Gloria Swanson's career goes, that Like, Sunset Boulevard is a huge success for her. She's nominated for an Oscar. It's an unbelievable performance, but it's, like, the question is, at what cost? Like, you know, Cecil yeah. B. DeMille is not asked to make these huge ego compromises in order to continue working in an interesting way. And, right, yeah, that scene is, like, just so brutal. And, like, the way that he comes off, I thought, like, it worked, where it's, like, he clearly has sympathy for her but not empathy and not enough to do anything about it where to
4: be direct about like I actually didn't like your script and he just sort of like lets her believe what she wants to believe and he's too much of a coward to like be clear about what's gonna happen and instead he's like get Gordon Cole on the
0: phone and tell him to stop because the reason that right he's like someone else take care of this I don't want to take care of this right yes yeah But then also, like, I think he doesn't come off as a complete monster. And I thought that was an interesting choice, too. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense where it's like that's where like it's particularly gross where he has sympathy for her. He understands her predicament, but he doesn't want to deal with it Mm -hmm. because he does sort of defend her before she comes in the room where they're like, oh, wasn't she a fucking nightmare to work with? And he was like, not really. Like she was great to work with at the beginning of her career. She was really smart. And then, you know, the more famous she got, the more difficult she became to work with, which also plays Mm -hmm. into stereotypes around actors, especially women, especially the further back in history you go (laughs) of like being characterized as being difficult could mean just being assertive and not rolling over advocating for yourself yeah exactly and so we don't really know we don't know enough about the period between you know norma uh, as a young woman into a woman in her 50s but uh, he has that really good line uh, a dozen press agents working overtime can do a terrible thing to the human spirit yes which is a great line and also is like it makes set like who but him would fully understand what is happening her and he does Mm -hmm. have the power to do something about it as does any highly influential director Mm -hmm. you know does her script suck certainly seems like it (laughs) like offer her a part that is not in this you know it's i I feel Mm -hmm. like because norma's whole world is designed to protect her from rejection or change there are all these missed opportunities for potential compromise right to get her back out into into the world and so it does feel like these paternalistic men who want to appease her but don't actually want to help her in any way like she's completely doomed our girl is Uh, and there's so
4: many layers because like they're feeding into this ego of hers that is almost bound to form in a scenario like this where you're so doted on and you have all these adoring fans and especially mm-hmm. when you get famous, super young, like she did. I think yes. it's mentioned that she was discovered when she was 16. So, you know, she's a very young person yeah. when she becomes a star. Just like
0: my theory my theory holds that you become frozen in maturity at the moment you become famous. Yeah and so she's still acting like a kid like mm-hmm. and and it is like they don't shy away from the fact that her i mean it's it's like funny the way that she it, it's sad but it is funny how she talks to Demille where she's like all right uh i don't care about budget uh you figure that out and i won't work more than 6 hours a day it's just <laughs> like norma come on uh-huh. we, uh, uh, we got to. okay but like that level of entitlement i like I don't know. I I, I kind of like that the movie doesn't make her tragic in the way that it's like, and she's not even asking for much. Like she is asking for a lot. Uh, she's a diva. She's not being reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> she is a diva, but that doesn't justify the way that she's treated, mm-hmm. and it also doesn't justify the way she treats people. Like it's exactly. just extremely messy. I think what I've seen talked about with Norma a lot over the years, which I do agree with, but it's like because it's such a complicated movie. I don't think that there's any like simple way to be prescriptive about her, but Mm -hmm. there are like, we've sort of been hinting at there is the tropes around older women Mm -hmm. are fully present. We see characters like this all the time. Even now the idea of like, this is a woman who has not accepted that she's aging. Mm -hmm. And what I think this movie does well, even though I think it is way over the top and like the Norma character is more a symbol of how a whole generation of actresses were treated and discarded as opposed to like an actual experience that happened to anyone my my favorite quote about this was from a former silent actor named Mae Murray who saw the movie and said none of us floozies was that nuts yeah. <laughs> which is a very old Hollywood way to say that but So obviously, it's not not even reflective of Gloria Swanson's experience. It's an exaggerated version of how women are discarded. And I think that what works about Norma's character is that you get the full context. I think with other Mm -hmm. older women, it's just presented that this is how older women are, not this is how the world treats older women. Right. Right. That's the
4: thing with this movie that I think makes it so great, which is that a lesser movie would say, yeah, this is just how older women behave. Why doesn't matter the way that, you know, women are conditioned to feel about themselves as they age. What's that? Never heard of it. You know, not, but this movie. Okay. So it presents, a woman who is quote-unquote past her prime and who is characterized as being delusional. She's controlling. She's very conceited and self-obsessed. But there's also this component of, like we said, she came out of this, like, system where, like... Which is fundamentally abusive. Super abusive, so focused on image and so heavily values youth in especially women it does tend to chew people up and spit them out and again especially women as they age Mm -hmm. this is clearly what had happened to norma and again like we mentioned there's the component of she became a star when she was super young she like you know came into all this money it seems like she invested in Oil, boo, and real estate, also boo. Bakerset,
0: which is like, I mean, <laughs> that's some rich lady shit. Like, yeah. And I also think that it is a good choice that she still has money. Because it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. the, it's not like she's down on her luck in the financial sense. But it's like all of the loneliness and like isolation in her life is fueled by feeling discarded and... And it feels like whatever underlying mental health issues she may have had when she was very famous are so exacerbated by the predicament that she's in. And also, I think, yeah, like you were saying, enabled, however well-intentioned, you know, you could debate all day, but by people Mm -hmm. like Max, who are like actively preventing her from trying to live life a different way because of how he is enabling her current lifestyle that is killing her. (laughs) It's like I, I... it's upsetting to hear the repeated attempts to take her own life and that like this has happened before, but there are Mm -hmm. no changes made to her life. And certainly so it's like, Max is a really difficult character for me because I like, he doesn't have her best interests at heart, at least in a long-term sense, like maybe in the short term, it's more comfortable for her to believe these things, but it's clear that like, I don't know. And it's painful to see Norma seeking out this validation from people where it's, you know, mm-hmm. I don't believe that she loves Joe, really. I think that she has. Yeah. I think that he and maybe I, you know, feel free to roast me in the comments. I don't think that she loves him. I think that he is someone that comes along when she is extremely lonely, who has a skill that she needs it's a mutually beneficial relationship. And that, like, ultimately, I don't think she kills him in anything but, like, anger and jealousy, which are not love. Right. Yes. He's the f-
4: one of the first people to reject her in a way that she actually is able to interpret it as rejection because yeah. she's so surrounded by this, like, sheltered, enabled life where you know he's the first person that who comes along and i really like his line toward the end where he says you know norma you're a woman of 50 grow up and there's nothing tragic about being 50 right. not unless you're trying to be 25 which is what norma <laughs> is trying to do
0: but i also like that line it's another amazing line that is so loaded because it's coming from a man because it's like yes. he is like on paper in a perfect world, he's right. But it's like, he doesn't, I feel like even though he understands that the world has done Norma this injustice Mm -hmm. and not in a way that feels underwritten in a way that I think is kind of genuine to a lot of people who don't have that experience of just being like, well, why don't you just snap out of it? And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, you know, it's presenting like, well, what are her options certainly what she's doing is not working (laughs) for (laughs) anyone especially her but like it feels like the alternative that she's being presented with is disappear gracefully and that is Mm -hmm. like what women are Especially, you know, women, the further back you go. And it's like she is operating at the highest privilege level. She's a rich white woman and she's still nonetheless being asked, you know, can't you just gracefully disappear? Like, Mm -hmm. why can't you do that? And I think that this movie, like, I don't know. I think in this movie, maybe it doesn't make an overt suggestion of like, what is the alternative? Because I don't think there is an alternative for Mm -hmm. Norma at this time. I mean, if we're being pragmatic, the alternative is go to tv go to the stage but like i don't know it's norma is an ego monster in a way (laughs) that a lot of actors are ego monsters i don't think that it's like a you know a A gendered gendered thing thing. i think that the way that people with big egos are treated is in a gendered way you know for sure no one's calling a man a diva they're like he knows what he wants and he doesn't take shit from anyone and like he's just going method and blah 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 oh my god yeah (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, when women do the same thing, they're difficult to work with. They're whatever. Mm. But she is an ego monster, nonetheless. Yes. But yeah, it's like, what are her alternatives? And it seems like Joe's like, why don't you just quietly, like, you know, can't you just be normal? And you're like, she kind of can't. Like, not that that makes that justifies any of her actions, but her right. whole life has been constructed in a way that it's like, what does normal look like?
4: <sighs> what does normal Norma look like? You know, what
0: does (laughs) Nermal look
4: like? Garfield? Wow. I used to have a (laughs) cat named Nermal because I used to love Garfield so much. Hell yeah. He was a really good cat. Shout out (laughs) Nermal. Um, yes. Like she is an ego monster, but she's a product of this environment that turns people into ego monsters. And Joe, yes, it's, he's right when he says, Grow up, you're behaving like a child, basically, and there's nothing tragic about being 50 unless you're trying to, like, desperately cling on to youth, which, again, she is doing because she is a product of this, you know, nasty Hollywood machine. Yeah, But he's also complicit in this in the sense that he is a writer actively working in Hollywood and his just complicit in this system that does value youth and beauty yeah in women and that like
0: chews them up and spits them out so <laughs> and it like makes sense that he's finally comfortable saying this when he i feel like I've had, i mean obviously not to this extent but like you know what, like your friend is like i'm leaving la i'm fucking done and then mm-hmm. and then they just start saying shit and like this is his his <laughs> moment for that where it's like yeah. you know he's done with this industry he doesn't need to preserve any bridges he's done mm-hmm. and so he can finally just be like this is fucked <laughs> like i'm fucked you're fucked this is bad pops the bubble because he decides he doesn't want to benefit from it i don't know why i didn't remember like it's a small detail but i was like he better not take that stuff he doesn't mm-hmm. he leaves the stuff he's just like fuck it i'm gonna go work at desk job in ohio and, you know, at that point in the movie, I wanted that for him. It's, it's <laughs> too bad that he gets killed two minutes later. There's something
4: to be said, though, for, like, look at this man who is able to accept that he didn't make it in Hollywood. And so he's going to go back to his, you know, humble beginnings and do whatever it takes for him to survive. But he's accepting that the Hollywood thing didn't work out for him. Whereas,
0: well, I mean, but I. I guess where I would contest that a little bit is like, because he's like half. I, I mean, I think the Betty character helps yeah. to
4: balance that out.
0: Yeah. And also that like Norma has such a wildly different experience of Hollywood For than he sure. has. He hasn't even been successful. So it's sort of like, well, yeah, it's kind of a le- like, you can't be doing much worse than you're doing. You're like kind of a prisoner, <laughs> you know? So it's not like it didn't feel gendered to me that it was easier for him to leave because there was nothing for him there anymore. Right, And then, like, it seemed like his only way to stay there is to be in this horrific, I don't even know if you can call it a relationship, this, like, cycle of abuse that he is a part of, mm-hmm. but is also very much a victim of, and I don't think that that is something to shy away from. I think that, again, if we're going back to, like, movie criticism of the mid 2010s uh which is Mm -hmm. where we came out of and then we you know grew up uh like norma (laughs) can't uh but that like there is a hero and villain of this story there's not like Mm -mm. norma is tremendously abusive and manipulative at times joe is like lies and manipulates people as well Mm -hmm. betty's kind of the only person who's chilling (laughs) and like give her time too because she's 22 she'll probably you know become a monster if she hangs out in hollywood long enough (sighs) it's inevitable (laughs) But I liked going back to your point about like the writer being complicit in this system too. It felt like this movie also had like a pretty layered approach to that because it's Mm -hmm. true, but it's also like demonstrated how the way that the system is encourages that Mm -hmm. where it's suggested. And it's like, we don't really get a clear idea on like what Joe would be writing in a Perfect world. <laughs> um, so like, mm-hmm. is he brilliant? Probably not. But like <laughs> he's trying to sell this shitty bullshit idea that almost sounds like someone pitching a Netflix movie, right? Like they're like, mm. um, I don't know, someone famous isn't it? Baseball, something, is this anything? <laughs> but how it's it sounds like, or it's at least suggested that like this is not the kind of work he wants to be doing. He would rather be doing something creative and different
4: mm-hmm.
0: but that's not the sort of thing that's going to allow him to make a living so that's also like drawn attention to god yeah that the line about being like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you've heard I of talent uh, but I want to work this year like <laughs> vibe that Oop. I get it I get it I get it yes
4: yeah there's that and then but I also just I mean representation of a woman telling a male artist that his art is bad and trite.
0: I loved it. <laughs> no matter like if they're flirting or not, mm-hmm. like she's just like, I cannot tell a lie. At that
4: point, they're not flirting. Cause that's like their first meeting and she's at work and she's just like giving her honest professional opinion. And she's like, Oh yeah, I covered that script and I passed on it because it was trite and i was like hell yeah dude and then also later demille calls norma's script awful but presumably he read the version that joe rewrote and like punched up and it's apparently still very bad so i
0: think joe is
4: is a flop he's not a good writer,
0: see again. I'm gonna come to Joe's defense here as someone who's done punch up work. Some things are unsavable, <laughs> fair, fair. And it also sounds like if she's hovering over his shoulder, being like, No, you can't take that scene out, it's like, Well, how much work did he even really get to do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. True, I say Joe innocent in that instance. <laughs> I do sort of yeah. wonder why, because there are multiple times in the movie where Joe is like, hey, Betty, like, you can have this. I don't really want to do it. I'm like, why mm-hmm. doesn't she just do it? He's given her permission multiple times. Why doesn't she just do it? Yeah. But maybe that's a good, I, I don't know. As far as Norma goes, to sort of wrap up that discussion. Yes. To really fully explore her, we would have to talk moment to moment how she's behaving. Mm-hmm. I think that there are many tropes present in her character, undoubtedly, I think that her character uses these tropes to really exaggerate the point it seems like Billy Wilder is trying to make about how Hollywood chews actresses up and spits them out.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that in that exaggeration, there are moments that are like, feel almost like I felt bad that Gloria Swanson had to act them out because it's suggesting that this could be her own experience when mm-hmm. she was a person and like it was really interesting reading about her process of becoming involved with this movie because she was a huge star at Paramount and there is like a degree of truth to that like line that Norma says when she goes into the Paramount lot of like you know why should I have to check in I'm the reason this place exists and Gloria Swanson Mm -hmm. was such a huge early Paramount star that there is like some tongue in cheekness to that yeah. she didn't want to have to audition for this part she was like why the fuck mm-hmm. would i have to audition that's silly and george cukor who is like another big old hollywood director was like just do it like you'll regret not doing it but she had to make ego compromises in order to play yes. this ego monster and i just like that is not <laughs> the fault of billy wilder but it is just an example of like even to make this movie that is hypercritical of Hollywood practices, those practices still had to be in play in order for it to even happen. And there were a lot of silent film star actresses who were like, fuck you, I'm not doing this. Uh Mary Pickford said no. Yeah. May West said no. I think and y- you can't fault them at all to be like Well and I don't think I would be able to you know, they're like, hey, do you want to play like a podcaster who's like a huge fucking loser? loser? I would be like I'd rather not. I don't know. I don't know. No. I'd, rather I'd rather not. I would rather not. was like, is there... Yeah, it's not even like hard. No, it's just like, is that really my only option? Is there... Which it mm-hmm. seems like for Gloria Swanson to get back into a major movie, this was the option. And like, that fucking sucks. Yes. But that... Okay, so this is interesting. Where
4: the reason that a lot of stars who were considered or offered the role of Norma Desmond, the reason they turned it down informs something which i'll talk about in a second but so like may west mm-hmm. who portrayed herself as a sex symbol even into her 40s 50s beyond mm-hmm. she was offended that she would be asked to play you know a quote-unquote hollywood has been because she's like i'm still right. fucking hot like that's not the which image letting, i want yeah, to portray the
0: may west rejection's the best one
4: <laughs> yeah then you've got an actor named clara bow
0: yes the it girl. She
4: was, yeah, famous. Remember her? Silent movie era star. She declined the role saying that she didn't want to engage in the film industry again because of how hard it was for her to transition during like sound films. And I think it just like rung too close to home. Yeah. Norma Shearer also rejected the role due to, like, I think similar reasons. She retired and she just had a distaste for the script. She just didn't feel like the character is someone she wanted to portray. But that brings me to this movie and how it does acknowledge the effect of societal expectations that are placed on women as far as like, you know, you always have to be young forever. If you age, you are rendered irrelevant. There's this strong pressure to stay young and beautiful and all of this stuff, which is a societal pressure, but also like very, very prevalent in Hollywood, which is so image based. Yes, This movie also, again, acknowledges what, probably led her to become such an egotistical person. Do I think that there could have been a few more explicit lines of dialogue that address this a little bit more explicitly? Maybe, maybe they would have been too on the nose. Right. But I feel like there are ways that the script could have addressed and acknowledged those things a little bit more Sure. thoroughly. But the movie, for the most part, does acknowledge all of these things. And even though there are tropes present as far as like, well, yes, of course, an older woman is going to be delusional and she's going to be jealous of the younger woman Mm -hmm. because there's that part where Norma calls Betty, who becomes Joe's new love interest and she's like, well, you don't even know what's happening. He's actually with me right and things like that. but these tropes are, you know, tropes often come from some grain of something of that's true, which we see from the reasons that those other actors rejected that role so like it's all very interesting and it's just handled and i think a, a more nuanced way than a lesser movie would have done
0: i mean i was i mean i i really really love this movie i just i also like i can't fault any actor for not wanting to play that role because i mean it's so you know reflective of what's happening within the movie of like this is mm-hmm. norma's big comeback and this was Gloria Swanson's, quote unquote, big comeback into mm-hmm. film that, yeah, required a level of ego compartmentalization that we don't ask of male actors is, is all I was sort of getting at. But it's still like, I think one of the best performances I've ever because it's like it's like sad and it's also good goofy and scary (laughs) what she's doing with her eyes i still am big it's the pictures that got small oh she's just iconic i love Mm -hmm. things were queer but they were about to get queer always true with this performance (laughs) uh she oh god there's moments where she goes like she does this little gremlin voice (laughs) that i love where she's like you know i'm not afraid to die and you're like oh my god hello uh she can go big in that way, but also have these moments of like complete devastation. It's just so fucking good. She's so good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Norma, I, I think that what you just said is a great sort of bow on the Norma conversation. Oh, thanks. But we've got a Betty. We've got a Betty mm-hmm. here. We sure do. We've got Miss Betty. I like Betty. I like her. I like. I so think she's I. got a good head on her shoulders. I like you said before. I I like that she is. And again, I think it is just an element of because I just think of like people I know and work with who grew up here tend to have a healthier attitude towards the sort of bullshit that takes place because it's just like you're brought up knowing it's bullshit. Right. It seems like that is sort of where Betty's coming from, where she's referenced that she's like a third generation Hollywood worker not a hollywood star and then we haven't even talked about her experience as an actor which i thought was a really really interesting narrative decision to just add that because it's like in like the space of a scene completely helps you understand where she's coming from and why her attitude Mm -hmm. like it was almost like she was spared this potential norma future
4: Right, right. So her backstory is that, like you said, she comes from a Hollywood family in the sense that her parents and grandparents worked in Hollywood, but were never in those huge roles, either as performers or like directors.
0: Yeah, like lighting, costuming,
4: stunt work, stunt work. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, like, she's a Hollywood... The real She comes from a Hollywood family, but it's not, like, nepotism, necessarily. It's not, like, all that ego is not present in her character and her kind of line of work. Then you learn that she, because she came from this, you know, like, working-class Hollywood family, it would maybe be expected that she would also work and... Ooh, let's try to make her an actor. So her parents had her take like acting classes and all this stuff. And then when she went to do auditions and screen tests and things like that, it's mentioned that they didn't like her nose. So she had cosmetic surgery, it seems, to quote unquote fix her nose or, you know, have surgery performed on it. And then, you know, the casting people liked her nose now, but then they didn't like her acting. So she never made it as an actor. Right. And it seems like this is something that she accepted and went to work as a script reader. Right. But as she tells Joe, she's like, I don't want to do this forever. I'd like to advance in my career. And that's one of the main reasons she tries to like strike a professional relationship with him because he says yeah. something like, He's like, thanks for your interest in my career. And she's like, no, it's not your career I'm interested in. It's mine. Like, I was hoping to get in on this, make some kind of deal, because I don't want to be a a reader all my life. It seems like she wants to be a screenwriter.
0: Right. And it actually, like, is if she's quote unquote, just a reader at this time, it makes a lot of sense that she would try to find a writing partner who has at least had some work produced to get her first screen credit. And then, you know, like if she's smart, kind of ditch Joe and start doing her own thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What she's doing makes complete logical sense. I love the story about her almost becoming an actor and then having that taken away. But like she, I think because she has a more grounded view of, how brutal the industry is because she's grown up around it it's not this devastating ego blow like she's she's adaptable and that's why she survives and because of and again it's like I think that there would have been a time where I would have watched Norma and Betty and thought that it's like suggested that one is adaptable and one isn't and like there's a good kind of woman and a bad kind of woman but Mm -hmm. you still have all the information you need as to why Norma was not adaptable she never got an opportunity to be adaptable she became really famous when she was a kid it's all she knows Mm -hmm. are there people who become really famous as kids who are adaptable people certainly like it's Mm -hmm. always going to be a person to person thing I think what is generally true is people who become Famous very young and then are fairly well adjusted as adults tend to have a good support system around them, which Norma very much does not. Does not. <laughs> so, as exaggerated as her fate is, I do feel like you're given all of the information as to why Betty is comparatively well adjusted. I don't think it is mm-hmm. a like youth equals good, old equals bad situation. Right. Then they add in this love story, oh, that's the which thing. is just like, I don't know. I think that this, it undercuts, like we've been saying for seven years, adding a love story is not an inherently bad thing. It's just like, well, what is it adding to the story? I think that like you don't lose anything in this story if it is like a professional relationship dissolving and not a romantic one developing. Completely agree. And that is like as close as I feel like you have to just a trope being a trope. I agree because like the two main
4: female characters in this movie both fall in love with Joe. And I'm like, first of all, why? Although I understand why, Norma, and we already talked about this, where it's like, does she actually love him? or He is
0: useful You know, to what's her. going on there?
4: Yeah. Exactly. Like, she probably, you know, thinks she loves him, but I'm sure she has a pretty warped perception of what romantic love, like, healthy romantic love is. Yeah. So and she, she kind of
0: had, like, she, Loki, had no problem killing him. She... <laughs> the second he... And that is, to me, what indicates that, you know, I mean, obviously taking into account the mental health cliff that she is falling off of the entire movie. Mm -hmm. I think that that like demonstrates that this was not love. It was like, I want someone around me who will help preserve this reality that I live in. And once he doesn't do that, she kills him. Exactly. That's not, yeah. It's that
4: it's, she's deeply lonely, it seems. And, Mm He's a young, good looking guy who comes along and yes, he also
0: William Holden. Like, he's, I
4: mean, <laughs> he's hot.
5: He's yes. A hot guy. So,
4: yeah, it stands to reason why she would be drawn to him. Yeah. But why Betty is drawn to Joe, I don't quite get in a romantic way. I can understand why she's like, oh, like, this is someone who can potentially help me in my career. And she's not going about it in any sort of manipulative way. Like this is how just networking happens in Hollywood where you're just like, oh, this is someone
0: No, and that's like (laughs) she's not pretending that she's doing something she isn't. She's very honest about Right Right. I mean in the same way where it's like it would be very easy for her to bullshit him and be like, oh yeah, I'm interested in your career. But she's honest about it. She's like, no, this Mm -hmm. is like a mutually beneficial thing. And they're collaborating in a way that felt like progressive of like you don't see women professionals acting that way in movies of, of this time very much and so like mm-hmm. it's cool and then I don't know yeah I, I guess it's like the only thing I can chalk it up to is like being 22 <laughs> like I you know certainly like in speaking for personal experience not out of the realm of possibility that a 22 year old can become infatuated with someone just because they're like older and kind of doing something they want to do and are Mm -hmm. nearby. Uh, (laughs) But I don't think it serves the story. I don't think it serves her story. I think it serves his true in a kind of male centric writer way where it's like, Oh, well he has to make the choice between two women and it has to be a, you know, romantic choice where it doesn't. I think that this, the choice that he's making is ultimately a professional choice anyways, because he's only with Norma for his career And, like, Mm -hmm. Betty is offering him a different version of that career. I think the choice is still, like, adding the romantic element is just, like, not Not necessary. necessary. I mean, it didn't take up so much of the plot that it derailed the movie for me. It just felt, like, thrown in suddenly. And I know that they were, like, flirting and vibing the whole movie. I wouldn't have minded if it was just kind of left there. (laughs) It's like they have this, like, horny... I don't know. I just hope she didn't go to Arizona. I, and I also kind of felt bad for her boyfriend. I was like, that was... Yeah. He was so nice to Joe. He was like, yeah, you can live at my house. I'll do whatever. You're my bud. And then mm-hmm. he's like, all right. Time to hit on your girlfriend. And you're like... Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Come on, men. Be yeah. better at being friends. Anyways, yeah. I, I think that the romantic element like, did the least for me of any relationship in the movie. Yeah. I mean... Hollywood
4: has been wedging in hetero romances for
0: decades. I know. We see it here and it still happens to this day. I wonder if that was like an original part because Billy Wilder's so funny and interesting. And uh, I just I really admire him. And I know that probably there's something horrible I don't know about. <sighs> I mean, but I really admire But I really love him, and I like hearing about just like he was just a little rascal. Where like he would submit the pages for this script to get them approved, a couple of pages at a time, just sort of trick people. And then he said he was adapting this from a text called A Can of Beans, and they were like, (laughs) "Okay." Like he led people to believe that he's like, "Oh yeah, it's based on this book I read called A Can of Beans," which is so funny. You're just like, "Wow, you really can." Just don't ask people who live here to read a book if you just tell them the book exists they're like yeah totally a sure. can of beans i heard about that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i just thought that was really funny mm-hmm. yeah uh do you have anything else you want to touch on for this movie
4: not really i just that norma engages in Like, as she's, I guess, seducing Joe, or like, however you want to define that, or what... Predatory. Yes, she is engaging in predatory behavior, because there's that, like, line of voiceover narration from Joe, where, you know, she would be showing him one of her silent films, and he says something like you know, sometimes she'd clutch my arm, forgetting she was my employer. Yeah, And then, you know, that escalates, which I feel like you could argue is leaning into a trope about older women that they are inherently predatory because no one sees them as romantically viable people anymore. So, of course, they're going to engage in... You know, sexually predatory behavior. And you're like, now listen. <sighs> I don't know how to, what exactly to make of it, but
0: I think that it is. I like, I, I am inclined to agree with you, and also like, yeah, like that older women will prey on younger women, and that's like one of the few kinds of older women that you see, or or just like an older woman who is single, there has to be this air of inherently like, she's desperate, right? And it can't be like, I don't know, like you could even be an older woman and be lonely and have it not translate to that behavior. But I I Mm -hmm. mean, I I guess the only thing, and I'm obviously not trying to justify the behavior, I think to contextualize the behavior, I feel like that behavior is somewhat in line with Norma's entitlement. Right. Right to how she treats people. So it didn't feel like out of step with the character, but then that speaks to like, well, who is the character? It's right. Norma Desmond. She's a menace, mm. but also she is wounded and she is a product of her environment. <sighs> hurt um, people.
4: Hurt people. Damn.
0: Damn. <laughs> wow. Someone tell Billy Wilder that. <laughs> I, I think that that's all I have to... I. I just, I love this movie. I love how... Challenging, it still is, and I love how mm-hmm. it interacts directly—not even like just with like the history of Hollywood up until this point—in a really brilliant and smart way. Also, Edith Head costumes, just shouting that out. Oh, yeah. that's that's always a good detail. Mm-hmm. But does it pass the Bechdel test? Wow, like low key, it does. Like I think <laughs> I'm giving it the edge. I think you could make the argument that you know, the grand context is Joe. But Mm -hmm. there is a brief phone conversation. There's, it passes like once kind of back to back with like Betty and her friend, who we do get a name. Oh, We learn her name at some point. Her roommate, right? Who like drives her to Norma's house. Yes, she is weirdly given a name in the car Uh when she's driving her. Either way, we do get her name. We could argue she's sort of like, someone's on the phone that's important because it's norma oh yeah and then it also there's like two lines of dialogue at the beginning of that phone call that pass between norma and betty before joe inevitably comes up right so it's a it's a loose soft pass i'm gonna give it but only because i just like
4: this movie (laughs) but it does demonstrate how little women interact in the movie but that's not what this movie is about if norma had more female friends yeah maybe she wouldn't be in this i think she'd be in better shape (laughs) i think her life would be in better shape yeah but society you know conditions women to as we've talked about many times be in competition with each other and not have Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. support and camaraderie so norma probably was just like although i think there are those scenes where she like invites other silent film era stars, including Buster Keaton playing himself yeah. and a few other people that I didn't recognize who they were. Um, yeah. But they were
0: real silent film stars.
4: Yes, yes. Yeah. And a couple of them are women, so she does seem to have some friends who she plays Bridge with. But, but it doesn't seem like they talk. I think they they that that's like
0: part of what makes that scene sad. Is like they're all together, but they're all kind of like... Again, makes me totally understand why silent film stars would be like, fuck you, Billy Wilder, because it does sort of present the entire silent film actor generation is kind of like checked out and zonked and just like drinking, shuffling their thumbs around, you know, and I also understand why it's like, oh, well, that's a fun part for Buster Keaton to take because he survived that era. So it's Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, he's fine. So again, I get why it's a challenging, annoying thing. Yes. In any case, our nipple scale. Our nipple scale. No (laughs) one talks about that.
4: Yeah. How come the nipple scale isn't the most famous media metric of all time? Which, of course, is our (laughs) scale where we rate movies zero to five nipples based on examining the movie through an intersectional feminist lens. It's true. Keeping in mind that this is a movie exclusively about white people and this white woman and her white privilege, Mm -hmm. which is in step with Hollywood at the time. Yes. There was very, very, very little space for anyone who was not white to achieve any kind of stardom in Hollywood in this era. But the fact remains that this is an entirely white movie about this very privileged white woman. In any case, the movie presents this very nuanced examination of what an industry like Hollywood does to people and particularly to women who are getting older. And it acknowledges the various... Context that kind of creates this kind of egomaniac character in Norma. And again, I do think there could have been maybe a few more moments of more explicit mm. examinations of that. The movie presents it visually without being too explicit about it. But again, you know, there's always the, like, you know, you don't want your dialogue to be too on the nose and too preachy.
0: Right. And I think that also, like, part of the reason it may have been more obvious to audiences at the time as well. Sure. Right. Yeah, because this movie's old as shit. It
4: is very, quite old. But even so, the movie, you know, presents these things and whether or not it how much judgment it is passing on Norma Mm. is not super clear to me. You could argue that
0: also is still like kind of eye of the beholder-y, like, I don't know.
4: Right. Cause it's like, she doesn't come up as very, you know, sympathetic or empathetic by the end on account of her murdering someone and then being like completely
0: dissociating about it but then also she's so iconic I know so but it's also not like a I don't know I think like a trope I'm getting burned out at right now in contemporary movies is like just a kind of like good for her ending to a movie of like and then she killed him good for her and that uh, <laughs> is well we'll cover it eventually but that was like the end of poor things for me where I was like it's another you know good for her movie uh-huh. that I think like whatever whatever different discussion <laughs> but like yes whether you like it or not this it's not good for her at the end of this movie it's, it's actually quite bad not. for her
4: it is not great for her but yeah yeah I don't know I I wish there was just and maybe this is just like you know us examining the movie in 2024 Some a movie from 19-
0: 75 years later oh my goodness yikes
4: but I think if this movie not that it needs to be remade at all but if there was a more modern retelling future
0: adaptations there's like been broadway adaptations Mm. i think glenn close won a tony for playing norma desmond which i wish to god i could see yeah yeah anyways if there was a more modern
4: retelling of this story or a similar story i think that it would be more explicit about examining like gender bias and all these things yeah that the movie isn't super explicit about
0: But it's like also, I think like fundamentally hard to extract this movie from this time because of how, even though it's like you can age up in history, the things we're talking about where it's like, well, what is the, you know, silent film stars, you know, someone who was famous 30 years ago, you'd be like, oh, easy one-to-one is like a 90s sitcom actor that is considered washed up now and trying to adapt with the times. But it's also so Mm -hmm. specific to like, I don't know. I think that that's why there's so. Like, there was just an attempt to comment on this in Babylon last year, where it's like the jump mm-hmm. from silent pictures to talk. Like, it's just so metaphorically works so well. Right. <laughs> and
4: it just reminds me that we still need to cover Singing in the Rain, because that is also a movie about the transition from silent era movies to mm-hmm. talkies and how. A lot of actors struggle to make that transition and are Mm -hmm. discarded
0: along the way. Anyway, sorry, really quick. So Sunset Boulevard, I did know this because I was recently, I don't know why like biannually I have to like watch every video that exists about Glenn Close. I just love Glenn Close. (laughs) I mean, and you're right to do that. Over the holiday break, I was just like, the time has come. I need to once again watch 500 video essays about Glenn Close. So I knew that she had played Norma in an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical adaptation from the early 90s. Whoa. And then so she played the part in 93 and 94 and then again in 2016-17, Iconic. But do you know who is currently playing Norma Desmond on the West End is mm-hmm. Nicole Scherzinger of the Pussycat Dolls. And I just think that Whoa. is, I would go see that. I, I mean, kind of baffling to me but also yeah I'm in. I'm in. I, mean, I want to see I want to see Pussycat Dolls Boulevard. Bring it. Loosen up my buttons, baby. Loosen up my buttons, Joe Gillis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <Okay>. I <laughs> will finally say what
4: my nipple rating oh, is yes. after so much preamble. Mhm. Hmm. I want to give it Three point five. Okay. It's a very white movie, but it is handling this subject matter with more nuance than movies from fifty or more years later handled this subject. So it's cool and interesting in that way. It's really cool. So three and a half nipples, yeah. and I will split them between Gloria Swanson, the actor who plays Betty, which is Nancy Olson, mm-hmm. and I'll give Billy Wilder, who hopefully was not problematic the way that basically I, I... everyone
0: from that era was by default. <laughs> I did a light scan he uh he said some kind of insulting things to uh, Marilyn Monroe's intelligence that people feel one way or another about. Ugh. And also, you know, he was the seven year itch director that did the famous skirt up shot. You know, he is not All right. Yeah. he's not without sin, but uh, I unfortunately am a big old fan. Mm. I wanna give this movie four that feels too high because of how cartoonish Norma is, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to go much lower. I'm gonna go three point seven five because it, it's just vibes based. Fair. I think this movie is. Fantastic. I think that there are elements of it that feel studio notesy. I hope, like adding in a love story between Betty and Joe felt unnecessary, especially because as I was watching it, I was like, Betty could easily be a male character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't wish that, but just because of like, it just felt like the layering on of the love story was not necessary. It's one of the few things I really don't like about the spoofy. But Norma is iconic again for all of the complicated reasons we've talked about that also have to do with the production and the time you know is it reasonable that this is the best possible you know prestige part available to a woman over 50 at this time no I think that's incredibly fucked up but it's an incredible part and it's like I feel like you for the most part and I know we've had discussions of the shades of gray you know sort of within that but like you Mm -hmm. are given context for The ways in which Norma is a product of her environment, and it is not empathetic to her environment, to the point where this movie actively Mm -hmm. makes a famous director look bad, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. I mean, like, I can't really think of a contemporary example of that happening in such an explicit way. I like it's a you know big old cautionary tale about why it's a heap of garbage to work in the entertainment industry, and you know, fair enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean not wrong not untrue and i also i mean i think i know that billy wilder is kind of known or was known for a long time uh, of being somewhat cynical in his outlook of the world where it's like there's no suggestion on how to improve the entertainment industry but i don't think that that's the job of the movie you know i I think Mm -hmm. that it really paints a bleak picture of the hollywood system at this time and like it works, and I think the fact that it is aged this well speaks to how little has actually changed. True. So I, I yeah, I just I think this is a, a wonderful movie. Three and point uh, seven five nipples. Still got a lot to say. Gonna give one to Norma. She did what she had to do. I'm Gonna give one to <laughs> Betty. I'm gonna give one to hmm. going give one to Hogeye. Oh, of course, Hogeye. Where's my hog eye spinoff? Now that we're we're scraping the bottom of the barrel of IP. <laughs> I'm like hog eye. <laughs> what, a, what about that guy? Let's give him six seasons and a movie. I'm gonna <laughs> take
4: back everything and give my three and a half nipples to the dead chimpanzee.
0: Oh bless their heart. We didn't <laughs> we didn't we don't know. And then I'll give my point seven five to Billy Wilder because damn, I love them. I can't wait to cover the apartment. I can't wait to cover some like it hot. Mm. And that's Sunset Boulevard, baby. I'm going to celebrate by walking down Sunset Boulevard and buying wow. one Diet Coke. <gasps> Yay. That's my oh. Sunset Boulevard, walking down the street and getting a Diet Coke four times a day. <laughs> Why? Because I can't have more than one soda at my house. Why? <laughs> Obsessive compulsive disorder. Fair. I'm gonna
4: walk down Sunset Boulevard and Nerd melt used to be on
0: Sunset Boulevard rip oh. folks, it's a long street. It's many miles. I was like also the Sunset Boulevard Norma's living on is not the Sunset not Boulevard I, Sunset I live on. No, we live on the pee-pee side of Sunset Boulevard.
4: Yeah. But I love it. I imagine she lives in like the Beverly Hills. She's, yeah. Brentwood. I don't, you know, all that stuff. If you
0: take the two, if you're a bus head like myself, you take the two far enough, you'll get to Norma's zone. But yeah, we're we're closer to downtown. Anyways, you didn't ask. Uh this is a great movie. I would highly recommend uh it and also it's streaming for free on the Internet Archive. If you haven't seen it before, you can watch it for free right now. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's our show. Happy <laughs> New Year. You got yes. a Shrek, you got a Sunset Boulevard, and next week, spoiler, you got May December. Mm-hmm. We're casting a wide net this year, so enjoy indeed you can follow us on all the normal stuff you can follow us on instagram you can follow us on x uh and you can also subscribe to our patreon aka Matreon. great way to start the year Ooh, five bucks on treat that. yourself treat yourself it, it's five bucks a month it gets you access to two bonus episodes a month with caitlin and myself and you also get access to our back catalog of over i think officially over 150 bonus episodes yes. uh so you'll be delighted and infuriated for days on end <laughs> so check that out and go
4: to our link tree link tree slash Bechtelcast to grab those tickets for our upcoming tour Once again, it's San Francisco, Sacramento, Dallas, Austin, and San Diego will be in those cities in early February. So check our link tree to look at all the ticket links and the dates and the details. So we hope to see you there. Yes. And you can also go to tpublic.com slash the Bechtelcast to grab some merch. So what you're going to want to do, grab some merch, wear it to the live shows Mm -hmm. and then we'll take pictures together and it'll be so
0: cute exactly in conclusion we love you happy new year happy 2024 it's going to be such a regular year we can feel it so normal so norma so norma so normal (laughs) goodbye (laughs) bye bye
4: The Cast is a production of iHeartMedia, hosted by Caitlin Durante and Jamie Loftus, produced by Sophie Lichterman, edited by Mo Laborde. Our theme song was composed by Mike Kaplan, with vocals by Catherine Voskresensky. Our logo and merch is designed by Jamie Loftus, and a special thanks to Aristotle Acevedo. For more information about the podcast, please visit linktree slash Bean
0: Dad, The Dress.
3: for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's
1: right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast.